Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the mid-alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Okay, so we've just made a new discovery. Well, it's not strictly new, though, is it, Emily? In fact, it's been around for about two and a half million years, ever since our ancestors moved to coastal environments and started harvesting seaweed, changing the course of human evolution. Okay, fine. But seaweed is new to us because now you can harness all of its concentrated benefits in supplement form from Dr. Seaweed. Turns out that Dr. Seaweed is a real person. (laughs) (laughs) A marine biologist who developed his weed and wonderful range of nutritional supplements based around seaweed's superpowers. Rooted in nature, backed by science, and created for your health and wellness, seaweed helps with immunity, cognition, and my God, do we need that at the moment, and a fully functioning nervous system, as well as skin and thyroid, some of the big guns. It's a superfood with masses of iron, calcium, iodine, and potassium, all the good stuff. So we are delighted that Dr. Seaweed is bravely sponsoring this podcast. And you can hear our chat with the doc himself in a couple of weeks' time. Discover the wonder of seaweed with 20% off using the code MIDALT20 at checkout, as well as an additional 15% off if you subscribe and save. Cancel and pause anytime free of charge. Dr. Seaweed is so confident you'll notice a difference that there is also a 30-day money-back guarantee. Available at drseaweed.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R seaweed.com. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Annabelle, and I'm absolutely fine. But my latest resentment is building towards the birds. (laughs) Not the birds. Yeah, the (laughs) fucking birds. So, and I think it's related to my insomnia. So if I wake up around this time of year and it's totally silent, I know I'm in trouble because it's before about 4.15. Okay, so my day's begun before 15. That's really bad. And then if I'm awake and the birds start to sing, because I don't know if you've ever been awake when the birds start to sing, but they don't gradually join a sort of chorus. <laughs> it's like you turn on the radio. They just turn on at this point about 4.15. And when that happens, I think, oh, my God, I'm never going to go back to sleep. And there's one particular bird. I sort of, I, I don't, I, I feel like it's a woman and I feel like she might be my spirit animal, but she doesn't even sound joyful. She's really <laughs> relentless and she just sounds like she's slightly howling into the void and she goes and goes and goes. And I just think it's not m- melodical. It's not musical. It's literally like an externalization of my extreme <laughs> insomniac 
anxiety. So from one uh, angry bird to another, basically. All the angry birds. <laughs> no one likes an angry bird. Um, how are you, Emily? Well, I'm Emily. I'm absolutely fine. But the other day, I bent over to plug my hairdryer, which I use once a year, into the um, into the wall, and I noticed that the, all the skin on my knees just, just sort of rippled upwards in a kind of, and then sort of collapsed. And I thought, oh my god, look at all that unsupported flesh. <laughs> and uh, and and then I thought my God, I wonder what I can do about that. And then I thought, I don't think I can do anything about that. And then I thought, okay, well, there you go. Well, that's <laughs> there the it thing. Is. You, you, then you wonder how much you're meant to mind. How much are we supposed to mind? And I find when I notice those kinds of things, I, I both mind a lot and not at all. Well, this was this, it's this weird, like, double-edged thing that where I went, oh, God, and then went, oh, well, <laughs> move on. You, generally have, literally... you genuinely have to ask yourself, so what am I going to do about it? Well, quite, Pilates quite. can only get you so far. <laughs> I know, moisturiser. I mean, come on. What are we talking about? Anyway, we talk a lot on the podcast about how hard it is sometimes to even feel like ourselves. And, uh, well, we're wondering about menopause and how we're going to handle the storms ahead. So this week, we asked Karen Arthur to join us to help us navigate those choppy waters. Now, Karen was a teacher until menopause floored her, robbed her of her sense of self and led her down a path of anxiety and depression. She left her job, her relationship and after a ton of therapy, found her new life as a speaker, podcaster, model and fashion designer, an advocate for women and menopause, particularly for black women and an utter joy. Now, we are thrilled to have you here, Karen. How are you? Well, hello. I am absolutely fine. But, well, I've just celebrated uh, my birthday weekend. I reached 60 yesterday and I am... I feel like we should applaud. Yes, please applaud. Uh, 95% cake at the moment. I have been eating cake and carbs... I would say since the beginning of April and my body <laughs> my body got up this morning and was like no Karen you can't there's no vegetables in my house so at some point I've got to go navigate you know the supermarket and find something green and red and you know all the colors of the rainbows put in my body amazing how easy it is to just form a cake habit though <laughs> and suddenly green vegetables feel like something very exotic and far away and then you think particularly if you are and if we're talking about menopause and perimenopause particularly if you are you know tired and anxious and confused then it's very easy to turn to cake and and, mm. and keep turning to cake <laughs> could be alcohol <laughs> you know could be self-loathing but we turn to these things and then they all and three. then the habit just takes, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it. Um, well, obviously, I've been surrounded by cake, and it's there, isn't it? You don't have to cook it. <laughs> it's just there, it's it's not fruit. <laughs> It's just there. And I may as well have it or put it in the bin, you know, may as well eat it, eh? Because I was brought up not to throw food away because of all the starving children and all the rest of it in the 70s. And so um, I am loathe to throw away red velvet. What can I say? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're only human. Um, so, Karen, can we rewind a little bit to when you realised... Um, you know, as a, as, as, a, as a teacher with a successful career um, uh, in a long-term relationship, that everything was starting to unravel. And at that point, I don't think you knew why. And how did that feel? What happened? Well, there's two parts to this very long story. <laughs> got 60 years to get through, love. Um, <laughs> so the relationship thing happened before. And I... OK, so everything I know about my menopause is all retrospect. I didn't know anything that was going on whilst I was going through it. 
So okay. I now realise that my perimenopause um, coincided with, and maybe the reason why, I decided that after 20 years with this man, I couldn't put up with him anymore. And it wasn't an amicable breakup. It wasn't. It wasn't a good relationship. It was a toxic relationship. It was abusive. I have two girls, and I suddenly turned around and was like, "I don't want my girls to think this is normal. I don't want them to grow up and walk into relationships with men or partners, find partners who treat them exactly the same." Because my self worth was on the floor, and so a switch flicked. I remember it very distinctly. A switch flicked, and I then spent. The next few days, having terrible arguments, and but actually taking the steps towards leaving this relationship, and everybody was surprised because I. How old were you at this point? I was forty-four. So perimenopause, which of course wasn't a word, you know. Mm. (laughs) I mean, at forty-four, until about last year, you just thought it was ten years away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, don't even go there. But yeah, yeah. So um, so that happened. But then, of course, what I did is I put my kids in therapy and I, you know, I, I made sure I changed my will and I put stuff into making sure I kept the house and did all the financial stuff. And I threw myself at work. I launched myself even more into my job. I was a head of house in a boys school, busy secondary boys school. I loved my job. I loved the kids. I prided myself on the fact that I was really good at my job. Um, I was at the top of my game, I thought. And then a few years later, I started to forget things. I started to not turn up to things. And I had always kept a lot of my knowledge in my head. Like you write things down and you write lists. But on the whole, I knew a lot of stuff and it started to leak. (laughs) You know, and, and I couldn't remember... Yeah, I didn't. I remember my friend calling me one Saturday and saying, oh, you know, are you okay?" I was supposed to meet her up the road and I convinced myself it was Sunday. I'd put it in my phone. It was in my phone, but I'd convinced myself it was another day. And it's distressing that, isn't it, when you start to make those mistakes? Well, it's, it's distressing. I mean, she was wonderful and we laughed about it and we reset the time. But when it comes to work... And all you know is work and you pride yourself and your status is all tied up in your, you know, your worth is tied up in your job. You, and, and you don't want to tell anyone and no one has mentioned the word menopause and you don't know that brain fog is part of menopause anyway. So you, I literally thought, fuck, I'm, gonna, I'm going mad. And if you add to that that when it came, where were we, 2014... When you Googled menopause, first of all, you got a gazillion symptoms. I did it at 3 a.m. It was a very, very bad idea. I don't recommend it. You just think... You, just <laughs> you think, can find whatever right, you want right, on the internet at 3 right, a.m. Right. And it's never and good. And so I, I, I thought... Well, I had tingly legs. I thought I had cancer. I don't have cancer. I That's where the cancer. internet always takes you at right? 3 a.m. And then when you Googled and anybody who was talking about it was very, very sad and very white, and grey hair, and wore a lot of beige, and looked like their life was over. So I, and I didn't, I thought I didn't, I didn't think I had menopause, because I didn't connect with any of those images, or any of the information that I was finding. And all I could think of was, I'm going to lose my job. 
which means I'm, I won't be able to work, which means I won't be able to make money, which means I'll lose my house, which means we'll be home. I mean, I took it to, you know, I made a whole film out of it, you know. And I, I, um, I took some, had time off, had to take time off work. I didn't really have any choice. But all the time I was off work, I was working out, I was trying to get better to go back to work. That was my mistake. And when you say get better, you're not just talking about forgetting things. You're talking about the, I think, the impact of the of those things on your broader mental health. Is oh, that right. correct? Yeah. So I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Right. And I, again, didn't make the connection because I was like, I thought depressed people walked around with the, you know, like their pet frog had died. I mean, I really thought that you had to be sad all the time. So I didn't make the connection there because I thought... Like I took, I took the diagnosis, but really and truly, I thought that's not me, because I laugh a lot, and I find joy in some things, and it I can have possible, a conversation. Isn't it? To be completely on the floor and in despair, yeah, and then also to have a really nice time, yeah. sometimes. And yeah. people don't. I totally agree that or people be don't perceived that. to be having a nice time. Yes, you know, and so I was trying to. So I felt like a bit of a fraud. Actually, I didn't like being off. I, I felt guilty all the time. I thought about the kids and all the people who had to do the cover, my poor deputy. I thought about everybody else but that. So I didn't really lean into trying to get better. So then I went back to work. And no one's mentioning menopause, of course. So there's no... Con- my doctor, even though I say, I think... Like, I go to the doctors in February now, 2015, and I, I've got this list of the things I need to get through... I've fallen down a hole, as you do, and I've, and I've, uh, my right side is shutting down, find it difficult to walk. And I just think, oh, well, I'll go in, I'll do a course of 10 massages, deep tissue massages, that'll be fine. Oh, you've so literally I, fallen down a hole. I, I fell thought you meant metaphorically. <laughs> no, I, was I like, literally. Yes, I metaphorically fell down the hole. So I'm standing Where out, was the hole? <laughs> so I'm standing outside the station, I'm going for a coffee. It's a Saturday morning. And there's a piano outside the station and someone is playing some beautiful music. So I'm listening and I clap, turn, the next thing you know, I'm on the floor. And what had happened is it was after Christmas and the Christmas tree that they'd put outside the station, they'd taken it out and not filled the hole in, basically. So, I mean, the hole wasn't, what's that, a foot, foot and a half? But I was so confused because one minute I was standing up and the next thing I'm on the floor, I just thought, I'll be fine. But you you underestimate the jolt that that takes to your system. And as we get, you know, back in the day when I was in my 20s, if I fell over, I would spring back up. I was in my 50s. I was in my early 50s. I wasn't about to do that. And I couldn't afford to be sick. So I decided I couldn't be. So I just, right, I'll get some massages. I'll fix that. I'll, you know, and then I'll various, I've got, I realised I was having hot flushes. I thought my boiler was broken. I was ready to call British Gas and have a go at them because I just had a new boiler put in. And then the penny dropped and I was like, oh, that's what that is, right? Maybe I am menopausal. I told the doctor all this stuff. So we mentioned menopause, but at no point did she make the connection between the brain fog and the anxiety and the depression and that so she offered me antidepressants to which I said thanks but no thanks let me go and see a herbalist go and find some other things first and then if I I can't cope then I'll come back to you 
and then we'll go down the antidepressants route. And what happened then? Did you end up finding a solution? Did you turn to hormones? I, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I did several things. I left my job. <laughs> That's one thing. Uh, I thought that leaving my job would fix everything and it absolutely did not. All it did was create the vacuum for things to get, mm, I want to say worse, but I'm grateful to all the things that happened. So I suppose I went deeper into whatever was happening. My, at the same time, all along, this all happened within three months. My aunt had been going in and out of hospital and then passed on top of leaving my 28-year career behind and not knowing what I was going to do, on top of navigating this depression. Therapy is something I thought, yeah, I don't need it. I can't afford it, is actually what I thought, which is actually think, not true. Uh, yeah. We can afford, on the whole, many people can afford the things they need, but we prioritise other people and other things first. So my priority was making sure the mortgage was paid off, making sure my kids were okay, making sure they had food, stuff like that, rather than recognising that I needed to show myself some love and some self-worth. And in doing so, that would give my daughters permission to, to do the same thing for themselves. I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, okay, I've got some money, I'll go into therapy. And I thought I'd do it for about six or eight weeks, if I'm honest, and then I'd be fixed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, guys, that's not how therapy works. <laughs> you don't get a certificate after right? six weeks saying you've You don't passed. get a medal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And You're my wise. therapist was, uh, is a black woman. And I didn't realise how important that would be for me, having someone who understood where I was coming from without having to explain. So we started on the same level, but I didn't know that at the time. And I started my story, you know, and she listened attentively. And then when I'd finished, she said, right, you tell a very good story, but how do you feel? And I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I'd spent decades from being, I guess, eight, you know, masking how I felt to cope, whether it was with my mum, my parents' relationship, they divorced when I was 14. My dad was a very oppressive, serious presence, you know, trying to live up to his expectation of my, you know, academic achievements when all I wanted to do was dance and sew. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was going to be a doctor. No, I bloody wasn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I didn't know how to feel and she helped me to to come back to myself and forgive that little eight-year-old and or the 15-year-old, or the 20-year-old who fell in love with an abuser and, and recognise that they're all parts of me and we do the best that we can with what we have at that time. And in answer to your question about hormones, I uh, absorbed the messaging that was coming from my mother. And then my mother and I hadn't spoken about the change. But if you mentioned hormone replacement therapy to her, she pulled her five foot four frame up and rumped and said, that gives you cancer, I'm never taking that. So there was no way at the time. I assumed that I would just go the holistic route. 
Usually my answer to everything is to drink some water. I'm also grieving the loss of my identity. I'm single, which was significant at the time and isn't now, even though I'm still single. I don't give a shit so much now. <laughs> I did then. <laughs> you know, I, all my friends were teachers. I lived down the road from the school, so I heard the kids going up the road and coming down. I could hear the pips on a, on a quiet day, you know, the, the change of lesson. I was wracked with guilt. I didn't have a physical ailment, so if I did go outside, I dreaded seeing somebody I know, and I know everyone, or seeing a parent, or seeing a child that I used to teach. I didn't what leave... What sort of... I, I saw Karen after today, and she's absolutely fine. She's fine, I she's I don't walking. know what all the fuss is about. Yeah. yeah. People made things up about me, said I had a broken back. I like that one. My favourite is that I had a fight with a teach with a with one of the parents and ended up in hospital. A physical really fight. Yeah, I didn't. By the way, <laughs> people make you, things up. You know, um, you fell down a hole, literally, literally and yeah. metaphorically. That's what happened to you. Yeah. So I, but but the biggest thing I did was get silent. My brother is a Buddhist, and he recommended a book by John Cabot Zinn called "Full Catastrophe Living," and his teachings are around. Well, mindful meditation. That's when I started quilting, by the way. I went through several seasons of uh, Breaking Bad and, you know, Scandal. And I discovered Netflix in 2015. I haven't looked back. So nice, relaxing telly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that slow, deliberate hand sewing, you know, and not knowing I was making a quilt, just watching it grow and watching this colour. I use Ankara fabric. I use colour. Uh, and watching it spread out and then thinking, oh, this might be a quilt, even though it's like several years from a quilt, you know? Mm. That's like therapy. That's like looking after yourself. I oh, know absolutely. I'm doing something, I'm slowing down. There may be several years from where I will end up, mm. but something's happening. We wish our lives away because we're busy ticking off our to-do list, but we don't. We fi- we think that we don't have the luxury, and it feels like luxury, when you just sit down with a cup of tea or go to bed and rest. But rest in a society that values busyness is an act of resistance. It's an almost political action when you choose to do fuck all. You know, big fan of doing nothing, me. <laughs> you know, but it it has to be conscious and, if, you know, when you say, yes, Hi, because how are it you? isn't an you know, act of defeat. That's the point. It's, it's not right. saying, I'm now going to retreat yeah. into a darkened room and give up. It's yeah. not that. Yeah. But that's what I thought I was doing. Let's yes. be very clear. I was under my duvet screening my calls and I was busy having suicidal ideations and thinking, well, not, not how would I do it, but the world, my kids would be better off if I died because they could have the house and, you know, they'd, nev- they'd be debt-free and that kind of thing. That's, you know, the world would be a better place without me. I mean... Even saying it out loud now, it seems weird because obviously I don't think that now. I know very well the value I add to any situation, you know. But at the time, I felt hopeless. I couldn't see a future. So I had to force myself to just one stitch after the other. How did your future start to reveal itself? I started to wear clothes instead of wearing the uniform that I used to wear for work, you know, the heels, the 
the, the tights, the, you know, the suits, the shift dresses, you know, all that kind of stuff. I would start to wear things that made my eyes light up. Sometimes it would be colour. Sometimes it would be things that people gave, who I love, gave to me. Earrings my daughter's given to me, my aunt's skirts, bright head wraps. I started to be more mindful about choosing clothes that I love, no matter what they look like together, rather than wearing something to fit a fashion or a trend or trying to impress, I don't know, a date or somebody at work, because I wasn't at work, so I didn't have to. So I was released of those kind of shackles. And I think that also goes hand in hand with growing and menopause and not, you know, not really caring. So there's a lot of things up. going on. <laughs> yeah, that. I was trying not to I was trying not to say that. No, you could definitely Karen, that. you sworn too much. You can stop now. So that started to happen. At the same time, I worked with a creative business coach. And she it was like double therapy really, because basically she was nudging me away from making things for people to buy and doing what I really love, which is creating clothes for women to enable them to feel good. And I was resisting that because I was coming from a place of scarcity. I have to stay up really late, make a lot of stuff and then sell it so that, you know, I can make money to keep my house. That's, this is, you know, there's a theme here. And she was helping me to move towards what I loved. And as I started to let go, and this took years, I wasn't with her for years, but this has taken years. When I started to let go of worry which is really hard when you worry <laughs> when you worry <laughs> when you're a worrier, when you're a worrier. Yeah. that's really hard yeah. but, but trust because basically my fear was was based on nothing there was no evidence that I would not be okay I'd made that shit up I made it up guys yeah. I'm a script writer <laughs> you know yeah, this is that's been my entire life right is is writing is writing horror films yes but I mean the horror films that come out of if, if I miss time, this chicken I'm roasting by ten minutes, it'll be a, it'll be cold. To if I if I wear the wrong pair of socks today, to I mean like tiny tiny things that end up in me exactly as you say, homeless. Actually, is usually where I end yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, that's where yeah. I end up. I've lost the house. I'm homeless. Some people call it bad lady too. syndrome. Yeah, I call it future worrying. Mm. And when I let go of that. And it's a, you have to practice it. I don't get up every day and go, oh, everything's fine. I, I, I work on it. I would walk to the bottom of my garden, which makes it sound like I live on an estate. It's yes. literally 30. <laughs> I would wander around no. my park. Yeah. <laughs> stroking the, the deer. Absolutely. Tickling the peacocks. <laughs> and um, speak the I ams. And the I ams that I didn't believe when I started speaking them which I now wholeheartedly believe, that would evolve as my confidence grew and my self-worth grew. You know, It's so with, interesting because know. I wake up every morning, I think, thinking, how can I make myself more lovable today? Mm. How can I make myself... I've just realised this. It's yeah, like, how can, I, no. how can I make myself love today? You know, and actually it's like, you're completely right. I should wander around my estate going, <laughs> I am lovable. I am loved. Yeah. How did you find the women for your clothes? The women who you were then going to dress and make clothes for? Well, for five months, I didn't. I didn't. And I had to have faith. So I talked a lot on social media and I sent newsletters out and I 
did jobs that I didn't want to do, like repairing, which is the devil, for people who designed, sorry, for me. Um, <laughs> and I, had, I, I was patient and I kept going and I lived off my savings. That's what I did. Yes. And gradually... And you had faith. Yeah. Somebody I knew who I used to teach with commissioned me to make a dress for her a party. I can't remember which party. And then she spoke to someone else and then somebody else came to me and I made a dress for her wedding. She bigged me up. And then now people search me and find me on the wonderful And so you internet. make individual pieces, is it all, it's all bespoke? So this is the thing. So I, I make bespoke clothing for women specifically because I like to talk to women about our bodies and, our, and they tend to be women who are slightly older, not always. And they tend to be women who want something for a special occasion because they feel they're worth it. And they're not always women who love colour. And it's the conversations we have, because it's a process, isn't it? I'm not whipping... They're people who appreciate slow fashion, appreciate attention to detail, want something that's going to fit them perfectly. I literally want to get in my car, (laughs) looking at you, drive from my end of London to your end of London, stand in front of my bra and knickers and go, let's go, Karen. What comes out of that? It's the conversations. The, the the dress or the outfit is, is great, but it's the bits in between because they've got to come to fittings and there's something about a stranger standing in front of you touching your boobs that opens your, your mouth. And that's the other thing that's so sad is that you talk to women about what they love about themselves, their bodies. My God, we don't. We just don't. Because we've changed. Our body doesn't look the way it used to. Or it's always looked like that and it's never been the way society values it you know it's not thin enough big enough some bits are wobbly my body's changed so much and i falling in love with my cake filled belly you know <laughs> yeah but but it's hard having had a washboard stomach you know up until i had kids that's hard and then there are people who will say things to us like i had a woman who always wore high neck tops because she had a scar here and someone had drawn attention to it once and so she, she, but that's part of you, that's your history. Or women who don't wear skirts above a certain length because they've been told they've got fat legs. Or women who always wear pole necks because someone told them when they were 15 that they got a fat neck. The fuck? That's, yeah. a, that's awful. It's amazing how that stuff sticks. And we all do it. I, yes. I, you know, we all do it. And we have to learn to celebrate our bodies as they work, because this, my 60-year-old body works. Okay, I might, you know, drop something and stare at it for a good five minutes, willing it to come back to my hand, you know. <laughs> or I, after dancing all night at my party, on like literally all night at my party on, party on Saturday, my body is screaming, what the fuck did you do, Cam? What were you thinking? You know, but it works. It gets me from A to B. Look fingers I can pick things up this is what I think everybody could do with focusing on rather than whether we will fit into that size whatever it is you know and so were these conversations with women part of what inspired you to start podcasting and talking about menopause no <laughs> well that didn't get me anywhere did it <laughs> I how do you see your beautiful future I know, right? flourishing <laughs> So I talked about where you're happy and I, you know, that people, that's a thing now. Uh, Hashtag where you're happy and I do where you're happy challenges and stuff like that. 
And then we have a pandemic. We go into a pandemic and I'm like many people who could sew, uh, making masks, <laughs> you know, and I moved my, I have a studio, so I moved my sewing machine and set up camp back in my kitchen table. I'm sitting where I'm sitting now, in my kitchen, which my quilt is hiding, the mess. <laughs> um, in my kitchen, making masks and trying to avoid the news because the news is kicked off because George Floyd has been murdered. After Ahmed Arbery is murdered, after Brianna Taylor is shot in her own home, after... Amy Cooper weaponizes her tears, her white tears against Christian Cooper and so and it but those two things, the, the Amy Cooper incident, the Central Park incident, and George Floyd being murdered happened within twenty-four hours, I think, of each other. And we are all a captive audience and it's kicking off on social media. No, the news, I've turned the news off. I haven't watched the news since Brexit, to be fair, but you know, and it, and it's just relentless. And I am menopausal I am aware that stress can bring on menopause symptoms early I am aware that black women from research that black women are more likely to start menopause up to two years earlier than our white counterparts I am aware of a term that I now know is called racial weathering which is the trauma that visits the body when you experience racism know about racism as somebody who inhabits a black body. So I know all this stuff and I'm grieving and I'm angry and I'm rageful. I can't go and see anybody. I can't, I'm stuck in my home. And I'm wondering, well, how are black menopausal women who are watching people who look like our sons, our husbands, our daughters, our aunts, people who are relate, could be related to us, how are they dealing with this trauma, this onslaught, and also dealing with their menopause symptoms? What's that about? And so I went, I came off Instagram for the sum total of five days. Yay me. <laughs> um, I didn't want to see anything or anyone. I would call my friends and we would just, there'd be silence. You know, I'd check in with my daughters. It was just, it was shit. That's a real, really bad term and it's an understatement, but let's just go with that. And then I, I said what I said to you. I, I, I uh, did a video and I started it with, if you Google menopause and click images, what do you see? And at the time, if you did that, you saw lots of white women with, with grey hair with their heads in their hands. And then I started to talk about what I've just talked to you about, about how angry I am and how are you coping? What is going on? I posted it on Instagram and it, it, people got it. They just got it. Everybody got it. And it, you know, was shared and all the rest of it. And then I decided to do my own research. And I, I have to exp explain that in the middle of, of all this, I'm thinking... Well, someone else will have done this. Who do I think? I'm doing the who do I think I am. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, so I found some research from 2007, which is basically 40 BME women were interviewed. 40? 22, sorry. 22. 22 that 22, many. 22 BME, <laughs> black and minority ethnics. That's, that's anybody who isn't white, basically. Uh, interviewed and by Northamptonshire 
trust, I believe. And they want to know why black women are half as likely to take up HRT as white women. So it's not necessarily to find out about your menopause symptoms. It's more about the HRT. I remember at the time, I'm still, I've still got a bit of a downer on HRT. I'm still, you know, queen holistic, you know. And out of those 22 BME women, four of them identified as black British women. And I was aware that if there is research about menopause and black women, it's Afro-American women and Hispanic women who are lumped together and it comes from America. So I wanted to know about people like me. There's pitiful amount of research about menopausal women anyway, because we have hormones and we're unreliable, you know. So, so there wasn't research out there. If you then break it down by ethnicity and, and nuance, my, my argument was if, if racial weathering exists, if black women are more likely to get menopause to up to two years earlier, why isn't that being connected? How, to me, it's, it feel, felt like a no-brainer. But that research isn't there. I listened to Omi Shadi Bernie Scott, who runs Black Girls Guide to Surviving Menopause, which is a podcast that is American-centric. We are good friends now. But I wanted something for people who had the same experience, a similar experience to me. So I bought a microphone and I looked in its box for four months. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be perfect. And I was listening to people like Adam Buxton. Who, yeah. Who's like, who is perfect? It's like a titan. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, and I, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Oh, my God. I was getting in my own way. And then I opened the box and I went on YouTube and I found out how to edit and here we are about to enter season three. So I must have done something right. Well <laughs> the response from black women has been phenomenal. Just the being seen, the power of being seen. Our stories are so similar. Menopausal stories are so similar. They're, some of them are harrowing. But my story resonates with across the board. I'm a, I was a teacher. I'm a woman. I broke up from from an abusive relationship I suffered from anxiety and depression I you know I lost myself I started again and and it also it's inspiring you know I recognize that showing up every day as me not pretending to be anything else for the likes or you know someone who stopped dyeing her hair who cut her locks off which I'm really still fucking loving who wears what I like you know and and does things I do things that I love. If you show up, you show people that they can do the same thing. When I was young, there was no one, no black woman to look up to. Like Moira Stewart, they are. Moira Stewart, yeah. who read the news. Yeah. And uh, Shirley Bassey, that's your lot, you know. Floella and, Benjamin. Right, right. Yes, place cool. But, but I will also say that these were, the images of ageing full stop were all negative. Yeah. So I did a post on my birthday yesterday on Menopause Whilst Black Instagram, which was, I didn't, I thought, six, I laugh when I look at myself. I laugh and, and I think of what I'm doing because 60 was dead. I didn't imagine myself at 50, yeah. let alone 60, because 60-year-old women were old white women sitting in, you know, high back chairs with knitting and a fire and a cat. You know, and no shade to women who are doing that, you know, but <laughs> I'm clearly not. And so I feel like it's our duty as we age. I tell you, I'm running close to the wind with that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't know if, my, if you can see my cat behind no me. Shade. But, hey, no yeah. shade. No shade. But I, I just, I, what I'm trying to say is that if we 
let go of all those stereotypes and just, I'm going to be really wanky now, step into our true authentic self. But it is what it is. It That's what it is. If you do that, think of all the little girls who are watching you. Not even necessarily saying anything, but by default, are, you are influencing. You are We are influencers be, simply because we give them permission to do the same. And we give them permission to put themselves first. Brap. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Edit that. No. <laughs> no, my kids will go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> There's no distinct. That's the problem about being one's true, authentic self and then having teenagers around to look at you and go, no, that is disgusting. Step away. <laughs> and so here you are at the end of this last remarkable cycle, not the end of, you know. I'm just in, getting in, started, in mate. constant flux. There we go. <laughs> I'm just we go. getting started. Listen. Listen, you know what they say? We're not scared of what we can't do. We're scared of what we can become. And there's, I was scared of how powerful I could be. I'm not anymore, babes. You know, we were brought up to believe that you had a job. You stuck to that job and then you retired. Well. <laughs> yes. So, which, which, is, which meant that when I left teaching, I thought I'm going to have to go into another job. But I also thought to myself, let me curate the next hopefully let's say 50 40 50 years of my life in a way that I want to and I change and we change we do change don't we we evolve and that's all good so I'm trying things and I'm doing modeling and podcasting and speaking and doing all the things and at the moment I've just I was going to say I'm I'm absolutely fine, but I'm selling my house and I've just accepted an offer on my house. That house, the house that was everything, the house that yeah. kept you, you know, yes. was this well, the house that you albatross had to around support, your neck. Yeah. You're yeah. Like, what, you, what, what are you going to do? You're going to sell I, the house and what will happen next? That's a good question. I am comfortable not knowing exactly what I'm going to do, but the money frees me up to do things. So I want, I'm drawn towards the sea. I want to move to the coast. I want to spend more time in Barbados as well. I want what I want in it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for coming and telling us your story. You're Thanks, blimmin' Karen. welcome. Thank Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. I've had a Bye. blast. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midalt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.